Welcome to Mind, Muscle, and Metabolism, the Jade Tita Podcast. Here you get the in-depth science and practical tools needed to change your body, optimize your health, and elevate your mindset. I'm Dr. Jade Tita, and here is what I want you to know. You are different. You are as unique on the inside chemically as you are on the outside physically. And those differences matter. They matter because there is only one rule to achieving optimal health, fitness, and body change. That rule, do what works for you. My goal is to help you understand exactly how. I'm so excited you're here. Your transformation starts right now. Okay, peeps, welcome to the podcast. Today we are going to be talking about cravings in particular, and then I guess more importantly, just what causes us to overeat in the first place. So this is going to be uh, something that I think everyone can benefit from. Part of the thing that we need to understand is that a lot of the discussion around overeating and diet sort of misses the boat. And it misses the boat because it really focuses on two things primarily, and that is carbohydrate and fat. That is really what we focused on. I mean, ideally, um, we want to have a situation where we can both balance hormones that control hunger and cravings and create a calorie deficit. Now, obviously, if we take the calorie deficit approach first, just try to indiscriminately cut calories, and we don't look after the hormonal effects, we have this backfire effect that can happen. I oftentimes refer to it as the metabolic credit card effect. Short-term gains followed by long-term penalties. And that's because of the way the metabolism works. It works like a boomerang. It works in a compensatory mechanism. In other words, you push on it, it pushes back against you. You try to starve yourself, it seeks out food. And specifically, highly palatable foods. Now, I want to draw your attention to a few things. And some of this is old research that's just never been followed up on. And one of them is uh, this idea of the bland diet. So we have this idea that has been around for quite a long time. And I think the first studies were done in the 1960s, where they would take individuals and give them this slurry of sort of bland starch, basically, is what it was. And uh, you can kind of think of this if you've ever had cream of wheat or something like that. Imagine drinking cream of wheat without any sweetener or anything like that through a straw in one of those big thermos cups where you actually can't see what's in the thermos. This is sort of what these uh, research studies uh, did, basically. And what they would do is they take individuals and they would give them this slurry. And that would be all that they would eat, this sort of bland slurry. And uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, uh, there's this part in The Matrix where they're sitting down eating this synthetic amino meal that looks a lot like cream of wheat as well. And, you know, they make a joke about it has all the things a growing, a growing man needs, yet it tastes, you know, super bland. And this is what you can imagine what this was probably like. Now, what was surprising about this research is that spontaneously, meaning without trying, people decreased their calorie intake pretty dramatically. In other words, this is all they could eat. They couldn't see how much they were eating, and they could eat ad libitum, which means as much as they wanted to. 
of this bland slurry. And what happened is spontaneously hunger went away, creating very large calorie deficits. And if I'm not mistaken, there was even a popular diet, I think, that went by the name of the bland diet at one point in time. Uh, obviously, that's not a very uh, pleasurable diet, which is probably why most people would not want to go on a diet such as this. But it does explain some of the paradoxes in obesity research and weight loss. For example, how is it that Asians eat so many carbohydrates yet don't overeat? Yet in America, we eat a lot of carbohydrates and then continue to overeat them. Part of this is because the Asian culture has a much blander diet and they also don't smother their rice that they eat in fats. It's typically eaten just steamed plain rice, which is very bland. The same goes for potatoes, actually. Potatoes, in the research, are one of the most satiety-producing foods that you could eat, right? So of all the foods studied, it's number one when you think of the satiety index. For those of you who don't know what the satiety index is, it's just a measure of how full and how, how long a, a, a food will keep you satisfied. And so potatoes win. Yet when you add fat to potato chips and salt to potato chips, or potatoes rather, like potato chips and a baked potato with all the skin on or all the fixings and you know mashed potatoes and all these kinds of things, people will easily overeat potatoes. So there's something really interesting about this bland diet. And there's some other information that tells us that when we have more flavors, uh, we also will overeat more flavorful food. And this makes sense from an intuitive point of view, right? The better the food tastes, the more flavors available to you, the more you're going to sort of sample and want that. And what we now know is that the brain is sort of the center of all this. When we eat highly palatable foods, and what I mean by palatable is things that taste good. They have the right textures, the right flavors. They have uh, this thing that pings our brain's pleasure centers and says, ooh, that's good. Let me have more of that. When we're eating those things, we are going to automatically want to overeat. And then after that meal is over, our brain's pleasure centers want more of that. And so one of the things that is going on here is that we're beginning to see and hear more and more about, even though this research is very, very old, is that when we have highly pleasurable foods, we oftentimes will eat more at that meal and set up our brain chemistry, or our brain circuitry to want more of these foods. Now, we've seen this in animal studies, and we're now seeing it in human studies. For example, one rat study that's one of my favorite studies to quote essentially gave rats several different diets right so they had one rat that acted as the control group or one group of rats that acted as the control group where they basically took these rats and gave them regular rat chow another group got rat chow plus sugar another group got rat chow plus fat and then a final group got rat chow plus fat and sugar combined and so if this was a human study, you can imagine there would be a diet group that had a regular healthy diet, a diet group that had a regular healthy diet with cotton candy and Skittles and all that kind of stuff. That would be the regular diet plus sugar. And then another diet that had the regular diet plus things like cream and avocado and cream cheeses 
and lots of oils and butter. That would be the group that would be the fat group. And then you'd have another group that would be the group that had essentially this regular diet combined with ice cream and cheesecake and foods that combine both fat and sugar and starch, which would be what we what the researchers usually call the cafeteria diet. So what do you think happened to these rats? Well, the healthy group that just was the control, nothing really changed. The group that was eating the rat child plus sugar and the rat child plus fat, both groups overate for a time, but then downregulated their appetite because that's what the metabolism does. It seeks balance. And so they did overeat for a time, gain some weight, and then spontaneously reduced appetite and then end up losing that weight. But one group kept on eating and eating and eating and eating and eating and eating and eating so that the brain never got the feedback mechanism and the metabolism could not adapt. And that was the group that was combining the sugar and uh, the fat together. Now, again, this makes some intuitive sense to us, doesn't it? Because we know that when we eat things like ice cream, it's very hard to stop doing that. When we eat things like hamburgers or french fries, it's very hard to sometimes stop eating in the moment. And oftentimes, we will continue to eat those things. Anyone who's ever had a cheat meal turn into a cheat weekend or a cheat weekend turn into a cheat week or a cheat month knows how slippery this slope of highly palatable foods are. We also know, although we don't necessarily think about it, that oftentimes when we go on a diet, most diets are relatively bland anyway. So most diets remove either starch and or fat and create this sort of thing where we are essentially giving ourselves a more bland-based diet. A bland-based diet. We are starting to see in the research pretty clearly in my mind, although some people would argue with me about this, that the combination of fat and sugar and salt and starch, this highly palatable combination, is the thing that seems to be the thing that not only triggers us to want to continue eating, but also has a lot of the negative downsides. I mean, obviously, the very the first and most obvious answer to that is that it is also the thing that has the most calories. Not only does it load the most calories into a meal, but it also causes us to want more calories at that meal and future meals. So that makes a whole lot of sense. And, and what we want to be thinking about is that this food combination may be the thing that is causing a lot of the issues. And isn't that interesting because we have pretty good research now that shows vegans who essentially go very low fat but higher carbohydrate. And, you know, these individuals actually do pretty well, most of them. Vegetarians and vegans tend to do better than the standard American diet. By the same token, people who go very low carb and very high fat also seem to do well. And so we have these two groups that are essentially removing one or the other of this combination, either taking out the fat so you don't get that fat-sugar-starch combination or taking out the carbs so you don't get that fat-sugar combination, which leaves us to this thing to say, hey, this is really interesting in the research, right, that we can see this. We also have a study in humans that basically shows uh, this is an interesting study that they did where they actually uh, had workplace people came into their workplace, and uh, this was easy to kind of see what foods they were eating, and they were given free access to vending machine foods, which are obviously foods that are loaded with sugar, salt, starch, fat, right? And what they saw is that these people overate by huge margins, these people who were given free access to the vending machine food in addition to 
the regular diet, these people overate by huge margins, sometimes up to 1,000 extra calories a day, and end up gaining, gaining a significant amount of weight as a result of that. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, we may see some of this overeating. And when you look across the board from how come Asians can eat a lot of starch and not get fat, how come vegans and vegetarians seem to do well and low-carb dieters seem to do well. And also some of these rat studies and human studies that are also showing this to be the case. So based on this, we can start saying perhaps, and certainly I've seen this clinically, that if we start to avoid this very highly palatable food combinations, we can potentially spontaneously shut off our drive to eat. And this is also talked about a lot when people talk about, quote, food addiction, which is a highly controversial subject uh, in uh, both research and the guru circles around the internet. Some people say it exists, some people don't. And it doesn't matter where you stand on that, but if you understand this science, you can kind of see something is definitely going on here. And so this food combination is a huge one, and this is maybe the reason why many people feel like, oh my God, if I have any of these food combinations, I just want more and more and more and more, and so I need to stay off of them. But you can also take this one step further and move to a more bland-based diet, or not even a bland-based diet, but a diet that has only one or a few flavors. For example, the keto diet, one of the things that some people think may be going on with the keto diet and why it's so effective at shutting off hunger. Is it the ketones, which we have some evidence showing that it is when you produce high amounts of ketones, it will shut off hunger? Or is it the fact that the keto diet is a very umami diet? In other words, there's one flavor typically in the keto diet, and it's a very umami flavor, meaning a very savory flavor. Lots of fats, creaminess, fats, that kind of stuff, but not a lot of other flavors. And so it's a singular flavor. So we can start to see, well, it doesn't have that many flavors. That's one of the things that a lot of people on keto diets complain about. And there's also something in the clinical world that I've seen that people who go on these keto diets and paleo diets that try to create paleo brownies and keto brownies and, you know, all this stuff where they're adding in all these stevias and xylitols and sweeteners into it, they don't seem to be able to do as well on these diets just as a clinical observation on my part versus the ones that are just doing bacon and eggs and heavy cream and butters and avocado and that kind of thing versus the people who are trying to make the keto diet or the paleo diet or the primal diet or the vegetarian diet or the vegan diet more like the traditional diet. Whenever you take any of these diets and then start trying to add flavors and making paleo pancakes and things like that, you may be going down the same slippery slope. Quick break, want to tell you about a resource you are definitely going to want to check out. I know not all of you are metabolic experts, you're not scientists, you're not biochemists, you don't necessarily know about hormones and endocrinology. So I created a free program for you, Metabolism School, to help you understand this stuff in more detail. If you would like the free course, you can go to drjade.com slash metabolism dash school. drjade.com slash metabolism dash school. Get the free metabolism school resource. It'll teach you everything you need to know in depth and really get you caught up on the science. Thanks so much, guys. Back to the podcast. So this is very, very important to think about, especially if you're one of these people who just feels like food 
controls you. You may want to start thinking about the idea behind this sort of flavorful, rich uh, diets, uh, moving more to a bland diet or a diet that is more singular in its flavor, and looking at avoiding this sort of what seems to be a pretty nasty food combination of fat, sugar, starch, or salt. And we don't necessarily know which ones would be worse, but we can guess, especially the salt and sugar and fat combination seems to be the worst. But we also know this can happen with starch and fat and how much of it is starch and salt or fat and salt. And, of course, put alcohol into that. All of these things can begin to present uh, potential issues. Now, the final thing I'll say about this is something that not a whole lot of people talk about, but it's also pretty old research. And this is the idea of the fact that protein kind of gets the shaft when it comes to conversations about diet. Now, the interesting thing about this is that while we have seen carbohydrate and fat consumption go all over the place over the years, uh, we have seen protein intake uh, largely remain the same and actually represent a pretty low, approximately 15% of dietary energy for the average Western population, pretty low amount of protein uh, compared to what we probably were getting, our ancestors were getting. And of course, this brings up a whole host of issues around the morality of eating animals, which sometimes I struggle with. And, you know, are plant proteins the same thing? But some of the, some of the research is, is suggesting that, yes, plant proteins absolutely are the same thing and can play a role here. And we also now with food science have the ability to uh, have protein powders and protein bars, and we can amplify the amount of protein in our diet through some of the uh, sort of things that we've done in food science, the advances that we've made in that area. But this is an important thing because one of the things we've seen in rat studies for a long time, that is if you give rats a low protein chow, what they will do is they will typically continue to overeat that rat chow until they get the amount of protein that is required for them. And this, back in the day, this started to become known as the protein leverage hypothesis, which uh, essentially says, you know, we have this situation where we can uh, leverage protein to our advantage in the obesity epidemic because protein has remained near constant within and across populations throughout uh, the development of the, the obesity epidemic. And so um, I'm really reading directly now from a study that actually was done back in uh, 2005, Obesity Reviews, the May issue in 2005, that essentially goes through this science. And so this is pretty old science, over 10 years old, and it was pretty old when this particular um, study was actually published. So this is something I've been reading about for a a very long time, but the protein leverage hypothesis essentially says that if we look at rat studies, and there's no reason to think that, uh, and, and other animals, and there's no reason to think this would not be the case in humans, is that we will typically want to overeat uh, to maintain a certain level of protein intake. And certainly we have seen this in the world of dieting and bodybuilding and athletic performance for a very long time clinically that higher protein diets seem to shut down satiety better than anything. And the research now supports that conclusively, that protein is the most satiating nutrient, not fat, not carbs, but 
protein. As a matter of fact, many of the things that we see with higher fat diets have nothing to do with the fat or little to do with the fat. Mostly have to do with the fact that that 15% of dietary energy intake typically goes up typically goes up for almost everyone who moves to a low-carbohydrate diet, even if they are doing keto. It still typically goes up a little bit. And so that is the thing that then causes um, some of this shutdown of hunger. And so if this is going on, one of the other things that you want to do in addition to watching the flavors and this sort of bland flavor or singular flavor diet and also avoiding these combinations of sugar, fat, starch, and salt is also to make sure that your protein intake goes up substantially from 15%, at least into the 25 to 30%. And this may be one of the reasons why we see things like when people adopt the zone diet, oftentimes, I don't know if people know that particular diet, but that was popular back in the 90s. It was a macronutrient ratio of 40, 30, 30. Well, obviously, if you increase your protein intake by 15% of total dietary energy, you're making a big difference in the amount of satiety enhancing product that goes into your body and decreasing the uh, other sort of appetite stimulating uh, macronutrients. And so we can leverage protein in this way. Now we're essentially saying, especially if you're someone who's very active, that really it comes down to about one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Now, typically, if you're much over 200 pounds, I've seen pretty clinically that once you get about 200 grams of protein in for these very heavy people, they can barely get that in. It's like their their appetite completely shuts down. And so I've rarely seen anyone need to go above 200 grams of protein, except for maybe some very elite athletes. But if you take your body weight in pounds and you simply try to get that amount of protein into your diet on a daily basis, you're going to do a huge service to your ability to not overeat. It's absolutely huge. And so now we have this situation where very simple things that you can do if you're one of these people who are overeating all the time. This doesn't have to do with fad-based stuff. This doesn't have to do with what your latest guru said. This is going right to the science and saying we have these three big things that can greatly contribute to whether we are overeating and having cravings all the time. Amplifying our protein intake to well above the 15% average, maybe 30%. Basically, the research shows probably you don't really want to go above 40%. But a really good way to do this is just take your body weight in pounds and eat that amount of grams of protein per day and then work very hard to not have these food combinations of fat, sugar, and salt that can derail you off your diet. So the the idea of these cheat meals may be a huge problem for some people if this pings the brain and then sends you down that slippery slope of, I want more, I want more, I want more. And then, of course, if you are going to do, and when you do, and sometimes you should actually do this, if you are going to go to the fat and the starches and things like that, make sure you're sticking with singular flavors or making sure your diet is pretty bland, especially if you're having trouble creating the calorie deficit you need for weight loss. And so, Those are the things I would challenge each of us to begin to look at. Start looking at a bland diet or a diet that is mostly one flavor that can do a huge amount to stop pinging the brain for constant comfort, highly palatable, hedonistic foods. Second of all, really start to avoid this high-calorie combination of of fat, sugar, salt, starch, alcohol, and use that 
just enough, but not too much, enough to make your meals somewhat enjoyable, but not so intense, not so flavor-rich, not so mixed up in that way that you cause that constant eating and turn your you know, meal into a meal that makes you overeat for the next two weeks. We don't want to do that. And then, of course, focusing on protein and stop buying into the idea that you have to, you know, basically cut fat or cut carbs uh, and realize that most of the benefits that these diets are having is because either they are giving you one flavor, they are avoiding this negative food combination, or they are raising your protein intake as a total percent. That's certainly the case with low-carb diets. And then, of course, on the vegetarian side, because a lot of times people say, well, where am I getting the protein there? The vegetarian side, they're still probably, if they're eating mostly vegetables and aren't a starchitarian, which most vegetarians who aren't very healthy and can't maintain that diet, they're not eating vegetables. They're not vegetarians. They're starchitarians, which is what runs them into problems. But you know, if you're an Asian-type vegetarian and you're eating blander starches, it may not be an issue for you. And if you can't get your protein intake in, the one other thing that you're doing is dramatically elevating fiber. And you're also, if you're eating a pretty bland diet, instead of doing all these vegetarian cookies and things like that, you are actually going to potentially do yourself a service. So I'm going to go ahead and end the podcast here. I hope that gives you food to thought and three big major movers that you can try right now that are relatively easy to implement that the science shows pretty conclusively are important and that most people are completely unaware of because they're chasing all these fad diets, not, not realizing that some of these quote, fad diets are working because they are creating uh, the environment that I just talked about. All right, guys, I'll talk to you at the next podcast. Be well.